0: How to dry the spirits. There are times that dry men's souls. The Spirit has spoken expressly in that the latter times, some should depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with the hot iron. Those days are upon us, and we cannot escape them. We must triumph in the midst of them, for such is the will of God concerning us. Strange as it may seem. The danger today is greater for the fervent Christian than for the lukewarm and the self-satisfied. The seeker after God's best things is eager to hear anyone who offers a way by which he can obtain them. He longs for some new experience, some elevated view of truth, some operation of the Spirit that will raise him above the dead level of religious mediocrity he sees all around him. And for this reason he is ready to give a sympathetic ear to the new and the wonderful in religion particularly if it is presented by someone with an attractive personality and a reputation for superior godliness. Now our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, has not left his flock to the mercy of the wolves. He has given us the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and natural powers of observation, and he expects us to avail ourselves to their help constantly. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, said Paul, in First Thessalonians 5, verse 21. Beloved, believe not every spirit, wrote John, but the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. First John 4, verse 1. Beware of false prophets, our Lord warned, which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly. They are ravening wolves. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Then he added the word by which they may be tested, Ye shall know them by their fruits. From this it is plain, not only that there shall be false spirits abroad, endangering our Christian lives, but they that they may be identified and known for what they are. And of course, once we become aware of their identity and learn their tricks, their power to harm us is gone. Surely, in vain the net is spirit in sight of any bird. Proverbs chapter one verse seventeen. And as my intention is set forth here, a method by which we may test the spirits and prove all things religious and moral that come to us or are brought or offered to us by anyone. And while dealing with these matters, we should keep in mind that not all religious vagaries are the work of Satan. The human mind is capable of plenty of mischief without any help from the devil. Some persons have a positive genius for getting confused and will mistake illusion for reality in broad daylight. With a Bible open before them, Peter had such in mind when he wrote, "Our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in his epistles, speaking of them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction." Second Peter, chapters 3, verse 15 and 16. It is unlikely that it confirmed apostles of confusion who read what is written here or that they would profit much if they did but there are many sensible christians who have been led astray but are humble enough to admit their mistakes and are now ready to return unto the shepherd and bishop of their souls these may be rescued from false paths more important still there are undoubtedly large numbers of persons who have not left the true way but who will want to by which they can test everything, and by which they may improve the quality of Christian teaching and experience as they come in contact with them, day after day throughout their busy lives. For such as these, I make available here a little secret by which I've tested my own spiritual experiences and religious impulses for many years. Briefly stated, the test is this. This new doctrine, this new religious habit, this new view of truth, this new spiritual experience. How has it affected my attitude toward and my relation to God, Christ, the Holy Scriptures, self, other Christians, the world, and sin. By this sevenfold test, we may prove everything religious and know beyond a doubt whether it is of God or not. By the fruit of the tree, we know what kind of tree it is, so we have but to ask to ask any doctrine or experience, what is this doing to me? And we know immediately whether it is from above or from below. Number one. One vital test of all religious experience is how it affects our relation with God, our concept of God, and our attitude towards Him. God, being who He is, must always be the supreme arbiter of all things religious. The universe came into existence as a medium, through which the Creator might show forth His perfections to all moral and intellectual beings. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give another. Isaiah chapter forty-two verse eight. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive an honor, glory, and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Revelations chapter four, verse eleven. The health and balance of the universe require that God should be magnified in all things. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. God acts only for his glory, and whatever comes from him must be his own high honor. Any doctrine, any experience that serves to magnify him is likely to be inspired by him. Conversely, anything that veils his glory or make him appear less wonderful is sure to be of the flesh or the devil. The heart of the man is like a musical instrument and may be played upon by the Holy Spirit, by an evil spirit, or the spirit of man himself. Religious emotions are very much the same. No matter who the player may be, Many enjoyable feelings may be aroused within the soul by low or even idolatrous worship. The nun who kneels in breathless with adoration before an image of the Virgin is having a genuine religious experience. She feels love, awe and reverence, all enjoyable emotions, as certainly as if she were adoring God. The mystical experiences of Hindus and Sufis cannot be brushed aside as mere pretense. Neither dare we dismiss the high religious flights of spiritists and other occultists as imagination. These may have, and sometimes do have, genuine encounters with something or someone beyond themselves. In the same manner, Christians are sometimes led into emotional experiences that are beyond their power to comprehend. I've met such, and they have inquired eagerly whether or not their experience was of God. The big test is... What has this done to my relationship to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? If this new view of truth, this new encounter with spiritual things, has made me love God more, if it has magnified Him in my eyes, if it has purified my concept of His being and caused Him to appear more wonderful than before, then I may conclude that I have not wandered astray into the pleasant, but dangerous and forbidden paths of error. Number two. The next test is... How has this new experience affected my attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ? Whatever place present-day religion may give to Christ, God gives him top place in heaven and in earth. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, spoke the voice of God from heaven concerning our Lord Jesus. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, declared, God hath made the same Jesus, who ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Again Peter said of him, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapters 4 verse 12. The whole book of Hebrews is devoted to the idea that Christ is above all others. He is shown to be above Aaron and Moses, and even the angels are called to fall down and worship him. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, and in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and that in all things he must have the preeminence. But time would fail me to tell of the glory accorded him by prophets, patriarchs, apostles, saints, elders, psalmists, kings, and seraphim. He has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is our hope, our life, our all in all, now and forevermore. All this being true, it is clear that he must stand at the center of all true doctrine, all acceptable practice, all genuine Christian experience. Anything that makes him less than God has declared him to be is delusion, pure and simple, and must be rejected, no matter how delightful or how satisfying it may be for the time to see. Christless Christianity sounds contradictory, but it exists as a real phenomenon in our day much that is being done in Christ's name is also false to Christ, in that it is conceived by the flesh, incorporates fleshy methods, and seeks fleshly ends. Christ is mentioned from time to time in the same way, for the same reason that a self-seeking politician mentions Lincoln and the flag to provide a secret front for carnal activities and to deceive the simple-hearted listeners. The giveaway is that Christ is not central. He is not all in all. Again, there are psychic experiences that thrill the seeker and lead him to believe that he has indeed met the Lord and been carried into the third heaven. But the true nature of the phenomenon is discovered later when the face of Christ begins to fade from the victim's consciousness, and he comes to depend more and more upon emotional jags as proof of his spirituality. If, on the other hand, the new experience tends to make Christ indispensable, if it takes our interests off our feelings and places it in Christ, we are on the right track. Whatever makes Christ dear to us is pretty sure to be from God. Number 3. Another revealing test of soundness of religious experience is, how does it affect my attitude toward the holy scriptures? Did this new experience, this new view of truth, spring out of the word of God itself, or was it the result of some stimulus that lay outside the Bible? Tender-hearted Christians often become victims of strong psychological pressure, applied intentionally or innocently, by someone's personal testimony, or by a clever story told by a fervent preacher who may speak with prophetic finality, but who has not checked his story with the facts, nor tested the soundness of his conclusions by the word of God. Whatever originates outside the scriptures should for that very reason be suspect, until it can be shown to be in accord with them. If it should be found to be contrary to the word of revealed truth, no true Christian will accept it as being from God, however high the moral content. No experience can be proved to be genuine, unless we can find chapter and verse authority for it in the scriptures. To the word and to the testimony must always be the last and final proof. Whatever is new or singular should also be viewed with a law of caution until it can finish scriptural proof of its validity. Over the half cent- last half-century, quite a number of unscriptural notions have gained acceptance among Christians, by claiming that they were among the truths that were to be revealed in the last days. To be sure, say the advocates of this latter-day theory, Augustine did not know, Luther did not, John Knox, Wesley, Finney, and Spurgeon did not understand this, but greater light has now shined upon God's people, and we of these last days have the advantage of fuller revelation. We should not question the new doctrine, no drawback from this advanced experience the Lord is getting his bride ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb, we should all yield to this new movement of the Spirit, so they tell us. The truth is that the Bible does not teach that there will be new light and advanced spiritual experiences in the latter days. It teaches the exact opposite. Nothing in Daniel or the New Testament epistles can be tortured into advocating the idea that we of the end of the Christian era should enjoy light that was not known as its beginning beware of any man who claims to be wiser than apostles or holier than the martyrs of the early church the best way to deal with him is to rise and leave his presence you cannot help him and surely he cannot help you granted however that the scriptures may not always be clear and there are clear differences of interpretation among equally sincere men this test will furnish all the proof needed of anything religious viz what does it do to my love and appreciation for the scriptures while true power lies not in the letter of the text but in the spirit that inspired it we should never underestimate the value of the letter the text of truth has the same revelation to truth as the honeycomb has to honey one serves as a receptacle for the other but there the analogy ends the honey can be removed from the comb but the spirit of truth cannot and does not operate apart from the letter of the holy scriptures for this reason growing acquaintance with the Holy Spirit will always mean an increasing love for the Bible. The scriptures are in print what Christ is in person. The inspired word is like a faithful portrait of Christ, but again the figure breaks down. Christ is in the Bible as no one can be in a mere portrait, for the Bible is a book of holy ideas and the eternal word of the Father can and does dwell in thought. He has himself inspired Thoughts are things, and the thoughts of the holy scriptures form a lofty temple for the dwelling place of God. From this, it follows naturally that a true lover of God will also be a lover of his word. Anything that comes to us from the God of the word will deepen our love for the word of God. This follows logically, but we have confirmation by a witness vastly more trustworthy than logic. viz., The concerted testimony of a great army of witnesses living and dead. These declare with one voice that their love for the scriptures intensified as their faith mounted, and their obedience became consistent and joyous. If the new doctrine, the influence of that new teacher, the emotional, new emotional experience fills my heart with an avid hunger to meditate in the scriptures day and night, I have every reason to believe that God has spoken to my soul and that my experience is genuine. Conversely, if my love for the scriptures has cooled even a little, If my eagerness to drink and eat of the inspired word has abated by as much as one degree, I should humbly admit that I have missed God's signal somewhere, and frankly, backtrack until I find the true way once more. Number four. We can prove the equality of religious experience by its effect on the self-life. The Holy Spirit and the fallen human self are diametrically opposed to each other. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to the one, to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. But that they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Because the carnal mind is omnipotent against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 7. Before the Spirit of God can work creatively in our hearts, he must condemn and slay the flesh within us. That is, he must have our full consent to displace our natural self with the person of Christ. This displacement is carefully explained in Romans 6, 7, and 8, when the seeking Christian has gone through the crucifying experience described in chapters 6 and 7. He enters into the broad free regions of chapter 8. The self is dethroned and Christ is enthroned forever. In the light of this, it is not hard to see by the Christian's attitude towards self is such an excellent test of the validity of his religious experience. Most of the great masters of the deeper life, such as Finilin Molinos, John of the Cross, Madame Guyon, and a host of others have warned against pseudo-religious experiences that provide much carnal enjoyment but feed the flesh and puff up the heart of self-love. A good rule is this. If this experience has served to humble me and make me little and vile in my own eyes, it is of God. But if it has given me a feeling of self-satisfaction, it is false and should be dismissed as emanating from the self or the devil. Nothing that comes from God will minister to my pride or self-congratulation. If I am tempted to be complacent and to feel superior because I have had a remarkable vision or an advanced spiritual experience, I should go at once to my knees and repent of the whole thing. I have fallen a victim to the enemy. Number 5. Our relation to and our attitude towards our fellow Christians is another accurate test of religious experience. Sometimes, an earnest Christian will, after some remarkable spiritual encounter, withdraw himself from his fellow believers, and develop a spirit of fault-finding. He may be honestly convinced that his experience is superior, that he is now in an advanced state of grace, and that the hoy. Paul in the church, where he attends, are but a mixed multitude, and he alone is a true son of Israel. He may struggle to be patient with these religious worldlings, but his soft language and condescending smile reveal his true opinion of them and of himself. This is a dangerous state of mind, and more dangerous because it can justify itself by the facts. The brother has had a remarkable mark- experience. He has received some wonderful light on the scriptures. He has entered into a joyous land unknown to him before and it may be easily true that the professed Christians with whom he is acquainted are worldly and dull and without spiritual enthusiasm. It is not that he is mistaken in his facts that proves him to be in error, but that his reaction to the facts is of the flesh. His new spirituality has made him less charitable. The Lady Julian tells her, tells us in her quaint English how true Christian grace affects our attitude towards others. For of all things to beholding and living of the Maker, maketh the soul to seem less in his own sight, and most filleth him with reverend dread and true meekness, with plenty of charity to his fellow Christians. Any religious experience that fails to deepen our love for our fellow Christians may safely be written off as spurious. The Apostle John makes love for our fellow Christians to be a test of true faith. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby We know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. First John chapter three, verse eighteen and nineteen. Again he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. First John chapter four, verses seven and eight. As we grow in grace, we grow in love towards all God's people everyone that loveth him that beget, loveth him also that is begotten of him first john chapter 5 verse 1. this means simply that if we love god we love his children all true christian experience will deepen our love for other christians therefore we conclude that whatever tends to separate us in person or in heart from our fellow christians is not of god but is of the flesh or of the devil and conversely Whatever causes us to love the children of God is likely to be of God. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John 13, verse 35. Number 6. Another certain test of the source of religious experience is this. Note how it affects with our relation to and our attitude towards the world. By the world, I do not mean, of course, the beautiful order of nature which God has created for the enjoyment of mankind. Neither do I mean the world of lost men in the sense used by a Lord when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Certainly, any true touch of God in the soul will deepen our appreciation of the beauties of nature and intensify our love for the lost. I refer here to something else altogether. Let the apostles say it for us: All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of the fa- of God abideth for ever. First John chapter two verses sixteen and seventeen. This is the world by which we may test the spirits. It is the world of carnal enjoyments, of godless pleasures, of the pursuit of earthly riches and reputation, and sinful happiness. It carries on without Christ, following the counsel of the ungodly, and being animated by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. It is a religion, it is a form of godliness, without power, which has a name to live, but is dead. It is, in short, a regenerate human society romping on its way to hell the exact opposite of the true Church of God, which is a society of regenerate souls going soberly but joyfully on their way to heaven. Any real work of God in our heart will tend to unfit us for the world's fellowship. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 15 Be ye not in equally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Second Corinthians 6, verse 14 It may be stated unequivocally that any spirit that permits compromise with the world is a false spirit. Any religious movement that imitates the world in any of its manifestations is false to the cross of Christ and on the side of the devil. And this regardless of how much puring its leisure is, purring its leisures, leaders may do about accepting Christ or letting Christ run your business. Number seven, the last test of the genuineness of Christ's Christian experience is what it does towards our attitude towards sin. The operation of grace within the heart of a believing man will turn the heart away from sin and toward holiness. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that and that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world looking for that blessed home the glorious appearing of the great god and our savior jesus christ titus chapter 2 verse 11 and 13 i do not see how it could be plainer the same grace that teaches saves and is teaching it's both negative and positive negatively it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts positively It teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world. The man of honest heart will find no difficulty here. He has but to check his own bent to discover whether he is concerned about sin in his life, more or less since the supposed work of grace was done. Anything that weakens his hatred of sin may be identified immediately as false to the scriptures, to the Savior and to his own soul. Whatever makes holiness more attractive and sin more intolerable may be accepted as genuine. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalms chapter 5, verses 4-5 to Jesus warned, There shall arise false Christians and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. These words describe our day too well to be coincidental. In the hope that elect may profit by them, I have set forth these seven tests. The result is in the hand of God.